0: Reading from his word this morning in Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O Judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people. O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner, and murder the fatherless. And they say, The Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, Your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute. They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Lord, there's no more precious promise that you've given us than your presence with us. God, as we look at life around us and even just our own life and our own hearts, God, we're a mess. Uh, we can't make sense of everything. We don't know all that there is to know and God, so many times we try to take things into our own hands, and it just makes matters worse. And so this morning, Lord, we come to you because you are the author of life. You made us. You know us better than we know ourselves. God, you see us and understand us, and we want your help this morning, Lord, to turn our gaze off of the mess, off of even ourselves, and to fix our eyes on Jesus And so, Lord, as we open your word this morning, uh, we just ask that you would meet us here. We, We humble ourselves under your word. God, in places where it challenges us, would you soften us to receive? And, Lord, would you just draw us in to a deeper relationship to you? Draw us in to loving you and knowing you and experiencing you more deeply. God, we come now through the blood of Jesus, your Son. Because it is only through him that we come to you, and we come asking that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, we worship and pray. Amen. may be seated. Hey, as you're taking a seat, I want to go ahead and invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 94. Uh, We've already heard it read, but uh, we will spend the majority of our time there today. Psalm 94, continuing our journey through the Psalms. Uh, there's so many stories that you and I know that display for us the power of revenge. Uh, there's classics by Shakespeare and Homer that are dripping with this desire for vengeance. Uh, even, I've even noticed that a lot of our uh, kid movies now that are produced sort of revolve a lot of times around a character who is out for vengeance or feels the need for revenge Uh, Recently, as our family was watching a movie, uh, one of the first characters we were introduced to in this movie was a person who was gripped by revenge. Something had happened to a family member, and it seemed as if this character's whole purpose in life was to make things right. Uh, And as we watched the, the movie, it sort of resonated with me, not because I've been through the same situation as this character, but because I, too, know what it feels like to be gripped by anger. I know what it feels like to feel like I just have to settle the score. Uh, maybe it's something more simple, like it's just that argument that you get in, and you're, you start going back and forth with somebody, and you just feel like you have to get your point across. Uh, or maybe it's a time when you've just felt, you, you feel slighted. You're not getting what you deserve. You're not getting what you paid for. You're not getting what you owed, what you're owed, and so you are ticked off because you deserve better. Uh, maybe, maybe for some of you in this room, you have more serious reasons to be angry. Maybe abuse or betrayal has entered your life, and you know that deep sense of uh, feeling bitter and ashamed, kind of all mixed up in a weird package? Or maybe for all of us, it's just we look out at the the world and we just see so much evil in the world and and it's just confusing. (laughs) It's just some weird mashup of injustice and things not working out and us not feeling like life plays out the way it should. So what options do we have? What options do we have In the face of injustice, Uh, when things aren't right, where do we turn? Well, the world tells us essentially that we basically have two options. Um, The two options that we're offered are, one, to take matters into our own hands, or two, to just sweep it under the rug. Uh, But there's a fundamental problem with trying to take matters into our own hands. See, vengeance is a dangerous game. So dangerous, in fact, that God actually tells us specifically in his word that you and I should never do it. This is what Paul says in Romans twelve nineteen. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Guys, we cannot handle the responsibility of exacting vengeance, because while it is true sometimes that we are sinned against, it is also true that we are sinners. That maybe, yeah, maybe somebody wrongs us, but then in our response, we end up wronging them, and then it just makes matters worse rather than actually bringing about justice. But here's the problem. Anger is not always bad. There are things in life that we ought to get angry about. There there ought to be moments in your life when the desire for vengeance has risen up in your heart. So if God is telling us that we shouldn't take matters into our own hands, is he saying that we ought to just sweep it under the rug? Is God telling us that we ought to just turn a blind eye to injustice and say, you know what, not a big deal, I'm just going to move on? Well, hopefully what we'll see from his word this morning is that the Bible actually tells us that if we sweep injustice under the rug, it's just as harmful and damaging as if we try to take matters into our own hands. What we're going to see from Psalm 94 this morning is that only Christianity offers us the answer to the desire for justice that we all have. Only Christianity is going to lead us to a God who has the right to judge. And a God who has promised, promised, promised that perfect justice will prevail So uh, we're going to be working through Psalm 94 this morning. Again, I I hope you have your Bible there. If not, um, I'll be reading verses out for us. We're going to walk through Psalm 94, and here's a question we're going to be asking. What do we do when we feel like we need to settle the score? What do we do when we feel like we need to settle the score? All the way from those little arguments we get in to the bigger moments of abuse and betrayal, even to just the complexity of evil. What do we do when we have that gripping feeling that we need to settle the score the first thing this morning, we move towards God. We move towards God. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. It says, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. Now, uh, if I can be honest, the phrase God of vengeance is a little bit alarming at first, Uh, it's kind of odd, if I'm honest, for me to even say that out loud. God of vengeance, it kind of rubs me in the wrong way. And I I think probably the reason why is I have seen vengeance be done so poorly. I have seen it tried so sinfully. And so to imagine God as a God of vengeance is, is kind of tough for me. But the fact that God reveals himself to us as the God of vengeance, I hope we'll see, is actually extremely helpful. Uh, there's two reasons, two main reasons that I see right now of, of why people in our culture and sort of generation struggle with Christianity. The first struggle, the first big struggle I see is that people wonder, how can God be good if there's so much evil in the world? That's one huge struggle that I see people dealing with. But here's another one. The other one I, I see people struggling with is they, they look at the God of the Bible and they say, he's too angry, he's too rigid. He's too intolerant for me, and so I can't believe in that God. But here's the thing, guys. The struggle for why God is so angry or seems to be so angry in the Bible is actually the answer to the struggle about why there's so much evil in the world. The reason there's so much evil in the world is not because God doesn't see it. It's not because God doesn't care about it. It's not because God doesn't have the power to do something about it. The reason that there's currently so much evil in the world is because God hasn't yet fully judged it. But in his wisdom, in his perfect timing, God has promised that he will arise. He will one day show up on the scene and he will judge every sin. Every evil will be overturned and perfect justice will prevail. So we can't both doubt God because there's so much evil in the world, and doubt God, because he's angry at sin. No, it is the fact that God is a God of vengeance, that God will bring about perfect justice. It is that fact that tells us that God is good, and we can trust him, even when there seems to be so much wrong. Now, while it's important to know who this God is, this God of vengeance, uh, another thing I want you to see about these first two verses is how from right at the outset, the psalmist is just moving towards God. He's just bursting in God's direction as he opens up in this psalm. And I think this is where this gets really practical for us. Uh, One of the underestimated aspects of our lives is how habitual we are, right? Some of us cannot go out to a restaurant and not order sweet tea. Some of us cannot, if our phone buzzes, not want to pick it up and look at it and see what's going on. Um, some of us cannot help but eat dessert after dinner because we're just triggered to want that sugar uh, after every meal. Uh, this is a quote from an article at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, their website. It says, according to experts with psychology today, habits form when new behaviors become automatic and are enacted with minimum conscious awareness that's because the behavioral patterns we repeat most often are literally etched into our neural pathways so just like sweet tea or a phone or dessert after a meal we are all wired to habitually respond to anger in certain ways that because we've done it over and over and over and over again, we probably, all of us in this room, probably habitually either try to take matters into our own hands or we habitually try to sweep it under the rug when something in the world is not right. That when, that when things don't seem to be going the way we think they ought to be going, we have formed pathways, we have formed habits that lead us in one Or the other direction. But here is what this psalm is trying to do for us. This psalm is trying to show us that there is another path. That when that feeling of anger is triggered, there is actually another path other than take matters into your own hands or sweep it under the rug. And the other path is to move towards God. Guys, this is something I'm trying to learn big time in my life. Not just when I'm angry, but in every situation, That moving towards God is always the best first response. I uh, find that it's just so easy to think of maybe other areas of my life, right? Like excitement or needs or thanksgiving. But when it comes to anger, it's easy to compartmentalize it and push it off to the side and act like my relationship with God doesn't have anything to say to that. But this psalm is teaching us something different. Um, let's think through this. I want to think through it in a proactive way and a reactive way. Uh, from a proactive side, how do we train ourselves, right? How do we train ourselves to move towards God in every situation? Uh, here's just one practical thing uh, for us as a church. We started something this year called coaching. And basically what coaching is, it's just an eight-week eight week thing that you do. Uh, not every day for eight weeks, okay? It's just one, one time, like one time, eight, eight times, okay? And you're basically learning the basics of what it means to, to walk with God, and you walk with somebody else through that, and, and you learn how to move towards God. You learn the basic things of like what it looks like to carve out pathways towards God in your life. Uh, but then what about on the reactive side? What do we do when anger has gone bad? What do we do when we know we've responded to our anger in sinful ways? What I love is that we still get to move towards God through repentance, And as we repent, as we turn to God, as we know we've messed up, we've gossiped, we've vented, we hurt somebody, we said some harmful thing, we defended ourselves, now we acknowledge it, we confess it, we repent, and as we turn back to God after we've messed up, we slowly begin to carve out that rut so that maybe next time we will move towards God in our anger and not just after our anger. So those are two ideas for us on both the proactive and reactive side. Um, Last week, if you were here with us, uh, we heard over and over and over from Psalm 93 that the Lord reigns. Hallelujah, right? Amen. But here's the first question that that I think we're always uh, led to ask when we hear, okay, the Lord reigns. He's in charge. He's sovereign. The first question that we're led to ask is, well, then why does it seem like evil is winning? And that leads us to our next point this morning. Second. We learn from God, we learn from God. And that's where we pick up in verses three to seven. Let's read it again. It says, "O Lord, how long shall the wicked? How long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless, and they say. The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. This psalm is giving us a voice to our anger. This psalm is showing us how to move towards God when things are not going right. And here's a few things to notice. Here's a few things I want want, us to see about this good and right expression of anger. One is that, that this is not some cry of despair. Uh, notice that the question that the psalmist is asking is, how long? How long? How long? How long? He knows that God is going to come through, but he's just ready for that day to be now. Uh, second thing is this. This is not some sort of personal vendetta. Right? When you look through what it is that's got this psalmist angry you see that this is about widows being murdered. This is about refugees being murdered. This is about orphans being murdered. The psalmist looks around at the evil in the world. He sees that there are people who cannot stand up for themselves, and it's got him angry, needy for God to do something. And then I think the most important thing, Always, and this thing, I would say this is at the bottom of his desire for justice, the psalmist's desire for justice, is that it's really about God. It's God's law that's being broken. It's God's glory that's being belittled. The people, according to verse 7, that he sees are living as if God did not exist. And as he looks out of the world, it is God's honor being belittled. It is God's ways being disregarded that has the psalmist so frustrated. So here's what you and I have to do when we get angry. We have to honestly look back and assess and ask ourselves some important questions. When I'm upset, when I'm frustrated, am I righteously angry or am I just self-righteously angry? Is this God's glory? Like, Is this, is this about God? Is this about what he deserves that I'm so upset about? Or is this really just about My honor. And what I'm so frustrated about, is it really God's law that has been broken, or is this just my preference that has been infringed upon? And these are helpful questions for us to navigate uh, and assess our anger. Now, after expressing the motivation for his anger, uh, it's almost as if the psalm breaks out into a little sermon in verses 8 and 11. Uh, So let's read that. He says, "'Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise?' He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eyes, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. He's saying that all of us need to learn and remember this foundational truth, that the Lord, the Lord who reigns, is omniscient. And that means he knows all things. He knows all things past, he knows all things present, he knows all things future. Uh, one of the sadder stories, in my opinion, of the sports world over the last few years is the story of Aaron Hernandez. Um, it's a sad story. Of a star football player at the University of Florida went on to play in the NFL. Uh, unfortunately, sadly, was convicted of murder and then took his own life uh, just a few uh, years later. Uh, What I found so interesting about the case of Aaron Hernandez is that when the evidence started coming out, the reason that Aaron Hernandez was convicted was because of his own home security footage, that he had installed these cameras in his house, and they had actually captured him doing something that then led to his conviction. And as I watched it, I just thought about it. this. This is kind of the thought that passed through my mind. How uncomfortable would it be if my whole life was presented for everyone to see? Everything I've ever done, everything I've ever said, everything I've ever thought was publicized. But Psalm 94 is actually teaching us something about God that God does see. He does hear. He does know our thoughts. And that's why only God is capable of being the God of vengeance. You and I cannot take vengeance because we don't know everything. We don't know all that we need to know about all there is to know to go out and seek revenge. But God sees it all. Now, this kind of drives us in two directions, right? (laughs) On the one hand, the fact that God sees it all, knows it all, and the fact that He's promised to come and judge, in one sense, it ought to humble us. Right? If, If you're here today and you haven't put your trust in Jesus, if you haven't sought refuge in Jesus so that he would be your righteousness, then God's omniscience is actually not our friend. God's omniscience is terrifying. Because the one who's going to judge us at the end is also the one who knows our very thoughts. But it also drives us in this other direction. If we do run to Jesus, if we do put our trust in him, if Jesus is our righteousness and he is our right standing before God, then God's omniscience is a dear and sweet comfort to us. That there's not one injustice that has ever come into your life that God does not know about. There's not one thing that you righteously desire to be repaid that God will not make right. There's not one wound that has come into your life from someone who sinned against you that God will not heal because he sees it, he knows, and he hears it all. Uh, Now as we move forward this morning, we're going to see that there's actually a blessing to be found in living in the position that we do where we know the truth about God's future justice, but it's not yet come about. And that's kind of where the psalm turns in these next few verses. So let's start with verses 12 to 13, and we'll see third, that we walk with God. We walk with God. Verses 12 and 13 say, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. God is doing something in his people, and he's doing something through his people in the midst of this world full of injustice. So let's start with what God's doing in us. What is is he doing in us? Well, verse 12 says that he's disciplining us. He's disciplining us. See, here's what the psalmist is aware of. While it is true that he's been sent against, it's also true that he is a sinner. Right? There is evil in the world, but there's also evil in me. And so one of the things that God does while we live in this world full of injustice and this world full of chaos and this world full of evil is he's actually dusting off our rough edges. God is forming us through the pressure of the environment that we find ourselves in. Some of this formation comes like through what we talked about earlier, the habits that we form, right? We participate, participate in our own discipline as we seek to form habits to move towards God. But some of the discipline, some of the forming, some of the shaping comes as God humbles us, as God softens us to compassion and love, as God rips out the idols of our hearts, as God strips us. Of our own pride and self-sufficiency, these things are not things that feel good. They're not things that we initially desire, but in the end, they are good for us. Uh, when I, I think when we hear the word discipline, we're tempted to think about punishment, right? Uh, but that's not actually what this is about. Um, good discipline, true discipline, is about shaping. It's about forming. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a uh, someone carve a wood carving with a chainsaw, but it is an inspiring experience. Uh, right? Chainsaws are these instruments of destruction. Chainsaws are instruments of death. They kill things. They cut things down. They are loud and aggressive. And yet, in the right hands, a chainsaw can produce something that's beautiful. And this is just one picture of how God uses things in our lives that we wouldn't think are good things, but in the right hands, in the hands of God, he actually uses them to work in our lives to make us more and more and more beautiful, more and more like Jesus. Right? Uh, these are things that, like Hebrews 12, 11 says this, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God takes everything in our life, including the things that are difficult and hard, and he uses them to shape and form his people for their good. But it's not just something that God's doing in us. There's more to this blessing. And so as we wait for God's full and final justice, God is also doing something through us. And that's why he adds in verse 12, let me read it again, verse 12, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Because while we aren't ever called to avenge ourselves, we are called to uphold God's justice. In a world full of lawbreakers, we are invited in to reflect God's law. That you and I are never, ever, ever called to achieve justice, but we are called to pursue justice. That you, this is kind of what, basically, what this means. You and I can know that we can always do the right thing, and we can trust God with the results. Um, maybe you've been tempted at some point in your life. To believe that a lie, for example, that might lead to some good thing could be a good idea. Uh, What this passage is teaching us is that's actually not true. Uh, Or maybe you've been tempted to justify your retaliation towards somebody else because you think they need to know that what they did to me is wrong. And yet what this passage is teaching us is that that's actually not true. Here's our hope. Our hope is in verses 14 and 15, that as we obey God's law, as we seek God's justice, we know this promise in verse 14 and 15. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. We can pursue justice without idolizing justice. We can seek to uphold God's law but be okay when we don't always get our way knowing that in the end God will make it right. I think that has a lot of implications for our public life. As Christians we seek to do what is good and right but then we rest back on the promise. This big overarching promise that God will never forsake his people. And that drives us towards the next point. point, uh, point four this morning. So fourth, this is what we do. We rest in God. We rest in God. Verse 16, if you're interested in kind of understanding how this psalm all fits together, verse 16 is the question underneath this psalm. This is the driving question that we are invited to ask this morning. Verse 16 says, who rises up for me against the wicked who stands up for me against the evil doers right we've all been in this situation at some point in our life where we're asking the question who will stand up for me and we're tempted to maybe answer that question in a number of different ways right when we ask the question who will stand up for me one answer we can give is i must stand up for myself Another way we might answer that question, we say, who will stand up for me? We might say, man, somebody just needs to get on my side. Or maybe in the depths of despair, we are tempted to answer that question, who stands up for me? By saying, nobody. There's nobody. I'm all alone. But that answer, nobody stands up for me, can never be true for the Christian Uh, If you're here, I just want to speak to you. If you're here this morning, you feel like you're all alone. You feel like nobody's on your side. You feel like no one stands up for you. Here is the the good news of Psalm 94 this morning. God stands up for you. God is with you. God is on your side. But maybe we're tempted even further to ask, well, how do we know? (laughs) Cool, you told me that, but how do I know? How can I know that God is going to stand up for me, that God's for me, that he's with me? Well, it comes with our identity. See, I want you to see in verse 14. In verse 14, God's people are called God's heritage. God's heritage. And so here's three rock-solid reasons that you can know for sure that God will stand up for you. One is this. He bought us with the precious blood of His Son. If God was willing to lay down the life of His Son for us, then we can be absolutely certain that He will stand up for us. He will not let the death of His Son Go in vain. Here's a second reason, rock-solid reason we can know that God will stand up for us. He is in us. If God forsakes his people, he would literally be forsaking himself. God has permanently put his own spirit in his people, and he will not Abandon his own spirit. Look at what James says in James 4, 5. He says, or do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, he, talking about God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Because God is in you, you can know that God will stand up for you. And then a third reason this morning is this. God has actually bound up his glory with his people. See, if God is going to be glorified, then it means he will be faithful to his promises. If God is going to be glorified and worshipped and praised and honored, it is because he is going to deal with the evil in the world. He is going to make good on his promise of perfect justice. And so God will come through for us because he has attached his own glory to his people and God never abandons his own glory. I want you to think for a second, if this afternoon your house caught on fire, what one item would you make sure to grab out of your house with you? For a second, don't count people, okay? What one item would you, If you had a chance to go grab one thing, what would you grab? I know I had more time to think about this than you. What I would grab would be my computer. And I thought, I thought hard about this. It's not that my computer costs that much. It's old, and it probably wouldn't be worth hardly anything to anybody. But the reason I would grab my computer is because of all that I have invested into it. All the pictures... All the memories, all the writing, all the account information. right There's so much worth that, to me, has been invested into that item that I wouldn't let it go down in the fire. And what this passage is teaching us this morning is that God has invested so much into his people that we can be sure we are his heritage. And he will not forsake his heritage. He will not let the death of his son, go wasted. He will not let his own spirit that he's put in us be abandoned. He will not let his own glory that he is wrapped up within us be abandoned. And so we can know that we know that we know that God will never forsake us. And that's why the psalmist then breaks out into this beautiful testimony in verses 17 through 19. He says if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Psalm 94 is not telling us that what has happened to us in our lives is just okay. Psalm 94 is not telling us that we should just pick up the rug and sweep everything under it. Psalm 94 is not telling us that we should just forget and move on in the bad things that have happened in our life. Psalm 94 is telling us that there is one who stands in our defense. And the one who stands in our defense loves us deeply and he has made provision to make up every care that we would have in this life. I love verse 19. It's particularly ringing in my ears these days. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Uh, The word consolation has become really dear to us in our house over the last six weeks. Our six-week-old daughter, Leighton, has needed consoling over and over and over. I feel like not an hour goes by where consolation isn't needed, right? Uh, The baby starts crying and everyone's like, "Eh," and you go down the checklist, right? You're like, all right, is it poop? Is it poop? She hungry? Is she tired? Is she over hungry? Is she, well, I don't know. You start running down the list. I love the other day, I didn't know what to do. She's crying, I'm like, you know, you're losing your mind. And Benjamin, my son, just comes with me, he says, hey, Dad, uh, this is not exactly how we said it. But he basically said, hey, why don't you try putting her on the floor in her little plaything?'" And I'm thinking, that's the dumbest idea ever. I put her on the ground, and she stops crying. It's like, quiet. I'm like, I think Benjamin just found his calling. This is amazing, right? Like, to console is to comfort, to find the problem and then bring in a solution that works. And what this passage is teaching us is that, guys, we don't have what it takes to withstand the cares of this world. It's too much for us. The evil, the injustice, if we try to take it On in our own strength, it will crush us. And so, God, in His mercy, has not only promised perfect justice, but now, in the meantime, He knows exactly the perfect consolation to meet us in our care. That every care we have is met perfectly by a comfort of God. In our loneliness, it is eclipsed by the promise that He is with us. In injustice, it is eclipsed by the promise that He will make final judgment. Even in death, right? Because of Jesus, it is eclipsed by the promise of resurrection. That the way this works for us is that when we feel the cares of our heart overwhelmed, and we will, we find the care, the consolation, the comfort of God that matches the care. And here's the deal. There will never, ever, ever be a care of your heart, a care of your soul that God will not have a comfort for, that he will not meet you in, that he will not know how to console. So we rest in this God. As we wrap up with our last couple of verses, I think one of the things we're going to see is that The psalmist's situation has not changed. I think that's going to be clear. His situation has not changed, but his attitude has changed. That We get to the end of the psalm, and he's still talking about the evil. He's still talking about the injustice. But his confidence in God, his trust in God, his hope in God has changed, and it seems to have changed everything. And so finally today, we hide behind God. We hide behind behind God. Verses 20 to 23 say, Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on the enemy their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. You see the journey he's gone on. He's still seeing life the same way, but his attitude has changed. His confidence in God has grown, right? Instead of crying out to God and saying, God, rise up, he's saying, the Lord has become my stronghold. Instead of saying, oh, Lord, how long? He's saying, the Lord will wipe them out. Ultimately, this psalm has strengthened our faith. And it showed us that if we are hiding in God, then we can know for sure, we can know for sure, for sure, for sure that God will not forsake his people. And this is what we realize as well, that initially, the idea of a God of vengeance might have been difficult for us, but it's actually what takes us right to the heart of the gospel. See, there isn't one of us who hasn't rebelled against God. There isn't one of us who hasn't sinned against Him. That what you and I deserve is what this passage says to be wiped out for our own wickedness, for our own sin. That nobody has been sinned against more than God has. And that implicates all of us. And so this creates a great dilemma. How is it that we who should be terrified by the vengeance of God against us can then turn and cry out to the God of vengeance for us? How is that dilemma solved that those of us who should bear God's vengeance can actually look to God's vengeance as our hope. And that dilemma is only solved in the cross of Jesus Christ. Colossians one 22 through 21-22 answers the dilemma for us when it says this, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What was happening at the cross is that God was enacting his vengeance that was due upon his people on Jesus in their place. Jesus took into himself all of the hot, righteous judgment of God so that for anyone who would seek refuge in Jesus, that vengeance would be satisfied. the Heidelberg Catechism, this is an old 16th century question and answer format kind of teaching tool. It asks this question. It says, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And then it gives this thrilling answer. In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and remove the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven See, guys, Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. Jesus is the perfect lamb who laid down his life so that the vengeance of God upon us that we deserve would be satisfied. But he's also the lion who comes to stand at our defense, who will make all things right in the end. Jesus is the perfect Savior who is the only one who could save us. And Jesus is the perfect judge, the only one who could Defend us. And that's why our only hope is in Jesus. Some of you have been sinned against in horrific ways. I've gotten to know so many of you over the years, and I know your life, I know your story, I know what you've been through, and um, some of you have been sinned against in ways that no human should have to experience. What the Bible is not telling us today is that what has happened in your life is okay. What the Bible is not telling us is that what has happened in your life is something that you just need to forget and move on from. Uh, what the Bible is not saying Is that what has happened to you is somehow your fault? What Psalm 94 is telling us is that there is a God who has promised to make all things right in our lives. This psalm gives us expression in our anger. This psalm gives us comfort in our anger. And I think most exciting of all, this psalm gives us a promise in our anger that not one thing that has been done to us, that we feel like hasn't been served justice, not one thing will slip outside of God's perfect and final justice that he brings. What it means to hide in God is to both trust Jesus for our salvation, for the sins that we have committed, and to trust in Jesus to avenge the sins that have been committed against us. I want to invite you today, if you have never trusted in Jesus and your heart, you know in your heart that you long for justice and you know in your heart that you deserve to be punished, you find in Jesus the perfect Savior who both saves you, forgives you, who justifies you and the perfect Savior who will one day come very, very soon and make it all right. Let's pray. Lord, life is complex, and there are so many reasons that we don't understand everything, but we are led, Lord, to see that you know it all, you see it all, you hear it all, and this morning, in the midst of our Hurting In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our frustration, God, we're running to you because you're the only way. God, we've seen when we try to take matters into our own hands, it just gets messier and messier and messier. And so we run to Jesus this morning, both the lamb slain for us who rescues us from our own sin, but also, God, we run to Jesus as the lion who will make all things right, who we can trust as the warrior savior that we need. God, come and apply your consolations. Apply the comfort to our hearts in every care that we bring. We worship you, Lord, because you are the perfect God of righteousness, the perfect God of justice. And we ask you to meet us, meet us, meet us with the reality of who you are. In Jesus' name we worship and pray. Amen.